The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to John, the book of John, and we'll be in 19, chapter 19 today. And I just want to say, apoplectic. How many of you, as soon as Greg said apoplectic, how many of you took out your smartphone and tried to Google what that meant? Anybody? That's what I was going to say. That's my next question is you probably couldn't spell it. Well, the only reason I know that is because I did that. And I typed in APP, API, AP, you know, I was just going back and forth. Finally, I figured it out. It's apoplectic. That's it. You still don't know what it means, do you? Basically, it's to stroke out. Some of you got so excited last night watching that basketball game, you stroked out. That's what it means, right, right, Greg? There you go. I just wanted to, I just wanted to come back at you with it. You know, it used to be that, um, that uh, me and Ethan, we were pretty well on level ground with intelligence, and then Greg came along, and it's like, we just, whew, you know, we're <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel there, so... All right, that was just a tangent that I had to take care of. John chapter 19, we have been walking through these seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross in this series called Seven Words. Um, And we've gone through now five of them. We come to our sixth one today, and Jesus here is going to exclaim from the cross, it is finished. Now, I, I don't want to be tied to my notes today. I've got a lot to share with you, but I, I'm, I'm going to try to not stick so close to my notes that I just give you a running commentary this morning. I, I really want to explain some things, though, to you from this, answer some questions about what God meant, what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. What is he talking about? What's finished? And then I want to come at the end, and I want to just give you some bottom line, just some, what does this mean for us? So that's the game plan. Let me read this, uh, these three verses, John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read through verse 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me just give you just a little bit of background, a little, little details about some of the things that are in these couple of verses. Last week we looked at Jesus crying out, I thirst. And we, we looked at that in detail, his humanity and his deity coming together in this and how we have a God who understands what it's like uh, to be human because he came and, and took on flesh and went to a cross. Uh, but I want to just give a little more detail on this. Why, why would Jesus here in these last few moments call for this sour wine? Was it simply to fulfill the Scripture? Well, that's part of it. But I want you not to miss that the other part of it was he needed to wet his lips. He needed to, to wet his mouth and his tongue enough to be able to get this last and final cry of victory out. Some people look at this and they, they hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It's finished. And they hear in that a defeated man who claimed to be something that obviously he wasn't. 
And I want you to see in this that it's just the opposite, that Jesus here is committed to the will and the plan of God from beginning to very end. And here in this moment, this is not a cry of defeat. This is a cry of absolute victory. It's one word, and I'll go over that in just a little bit. One word in the original language, tetelestai. But I want you also to see here that when they took this sour wine and they put it on a sponge, they they took a sponge full of it, put it on a hyssop branch and lifted it to him. The, The Jews, when they saw them lift this sponge to him on this hyssop branch, would have immediately been taken back to Exodus 12. And Exodus 12 was the first Passover when the Israelites were held in captivity in Egypt, and God was going to deliver them out from under Pharaoh. And in that last plague where he was going to send that death angel through Egypt to kill the firstborn sons of all there, except for the ones that were in houses where they had slaughtered a lamb and taken a hyssop branch. The Bible says there in Exodus 12, a bunch of hyssop and dipped it in the blood of this lamb and sprinkled it on the doorposts and the lintels of their home. And this should point to us here that in, the, in Exodus, God is, this is an instrument of God providing a way of protection. And it is very fitting that here, when Jesus is on the cross, that this hyssop branch is here used again where God is providing this final protection in Christ. It says that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And I don't want to take too much away from from next week's last saying from the cross, but this is not the normal way a person dies. Normally a person doesn't bow very, control their head and give up their spirit. I've been doing ministry and been a pastor long enough to, to have been in a lot of hospital rooms and there at a lot of last moments. And, um, I've heard a lot of people, family members, come and say, well, you know, he, he just couldn't hang on any longer. I mean, Dad tried. He fought it for a long time, but it just reached a point where he just couldn't hang on any longer. Or lots of times people die, and, and they die in, in a sense of maybe accident or even murder, and they use words like, his life was taken from her. Her life was taken from her. Or maybe someone were, commits suicide. And we say they took their own life. Lots of times I've been with people who are uh, elderly and they keep, they keep lingering on and they'll say things like, I'm just ready to go. I just wish the Lord would go ahead and take me. Lana's great-grandmother was that way. She was 102, uh, almost 102 when she passed away. I'm just ready. Huge Kentucky Wildcat fan lay in that nursing home bed and, and listen to all those games, and she'd just say, I just wish the Lord would just take me. I don't know what he's waiting for. See, this is not the normal way someone dies. Normally, people are, are either fighting against it or they're ready, but the Lord's not ready. But here, Jesus, under his own power, says, it's finished. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. This is not normal, and it points to the fact that Jesus here is not defeated, but he is in on this from the very beginning. He's faithful to stick to the plan to the very, very end. Well, I want to look at this one statement then in this. After looking at the sour wine, the hyssop branch, and bowing his head, giving up his spirit, there's this statement in the middle. It is finished. And in the original language, it is one word. It is tetelestai. 
And it is a, it is a, it is a, a word of victory. Uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, I'm not sure about this, but Charles Spurgeon called this one word an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. Think about that. One word, but yet in this one word, there is an ocean of meaning. A.W. Pink said, One word in the original, yet in that word is wrapped up the gospel of God. In that word is contained the ground of the believer's assurance, and in that word is discovered the sum of all joy and the very spirit of all divine consolation. This word, it is finished. Tetelestai is a word that means to make an end of, to fully perform, to pay in full. To, to accomplish. This is what this word means. So when Jesus here is saying, it is finished, and it brings us to a question. What's finished? If it's not a word of defeat, but he's pointing to victory, then what is he talking about? What is finished? Well, let me give you just a few things that are here finished, and I will in no way exhaust all that God has completed here at the cross, but let me give you just a few. We look at the immediate context of our passage, which is always good to do. When you study the Word of God, a great rule of thumb is to let the Word of God interpret the Word of God. Don't pull things out of context and say, well, you know, this just speaks to me in this way because this, I think, means this. When oftentimes there are things right around that one verse that you've plucked out that will directly tell you that what you think it means is, is just silly. It's, as Charles Barkley would say, it's terrible. It's terrible interpretation. Don't pull things out of their context. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So here in this immediate context, when Jesus says, I thirst in order to fulfill the Scriptures, one of the things we point to is this. When, when he says, it's finished, he's pointing to all those things that were prophesied about him. All those things have now been finished. They've all been brought to completion. I mean, I just want you to think about some of the things that were said about him. Hundreds and even a thousand years before Jesus was on the planet, it was said of him that, that, uh, that he would be from Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that, uh, that he would be a descendant of Abraham. Matthew 1 tells us he was. That he would be a descendant of David. And so Matthew 1 says he is also a son of David. Jeremiah 31, 15 had prophesied that the children of Rachel, Rachel being the wife of, of, of Israel, of Jacob, this, that the, the, the Rachel would weep for her children. And it's pointing to this loss of children, which was what happened when Jesus was born and this wicked king became jealous and started killing all these male babies under the age of two. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, the eyes of the blind. This is well before Jesus ever comes on the scene, and it prophesies that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And if you've read any of the four Gospels lately, you know that Jesus came and did those things so abundantly. You go all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they've sinned and they go hide from God and God comes in. And what does he say? He says to the serpent, the seed of the woman, you may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. 
And all of this that was pointing to Jesus, this seed of the woman here is Jesus. And Jesus is summing all of this up. Other passages taught that, that he would, the Messiah would come and when he came he would teach in parables. We see how Jesus taught in parables. That he would be a king that would come riding on a donkey. On his triumphal entry he did this. That he would be rejected and despised by his fellow men. That he would be a stumbling stone to Israel. And all these things have come true. And now when Jesus on the cross cries, it is finished. He's pointing to the whole counsel of the word of God that is pointed to him and saying, can't you see I am he? I can't help but to think that that this message is directly in some ways pointed to those out there that were supposed to know the Word of God, those that had studied it and made it their living. And Jesus says, I think in some ways to them, it is finished. Take account of my life. Secondly, what was finished? Well, all the suffering. You think about all the suffering that Jesus had to endure. In Matthew 16, it says that he began to to teach and share with his disciples all that he must go and suffer. He must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And there that he should be killed and on the third day be raised. And in this moment, I think he's pointing to the fact that all of the suffering that he's endured is, is, is finished. In some ways, there's, there's more to come, yet he, he still hasn't died when he says this. He hasn't been placed into the grave at this point. He hasn't come out of the grave raised after three days. But he's saying this as if those are finished realities. He's counting on the faithfulness of God. But think about what Jesus has endured to this moment. He, Jesus, who was God himself, who had always existed in the presence of worshiping angels took on flesh and lived as a mere human being and didn't come on the scene as a grown-up but came on the scene as an infant who had to nurse at his mother's breast, who had to grow up through childhood, who had to grow up through the teenage years. Anybody want to go back to the teenage years? I mean, teenagers enjoy it, but I wouldn't go back now uh, for, for all the money in the world. I love you guys, but y'all, y'all have it. I don't have enough hair to go back. Uh, Jesus came on that scene. He came there and he suffers as a mere mortal man. All the while, all these years growing up as a human, knowing what's coming. And he's suffering the, the anticipation of this day. We like to think of him anticipating this day and suffering. We, we picture it as that garden of Gethsemane experience. But really it was an entire lifetime knowing this day was coming. He suffers physically on the cross. I won't recap that for you, but you should never get past that. You should never get past what he endured physically, the sound of the hammer and the nails and all of the scenery around it. But beyond the physical suffering, what he suffers here is the taking the cup from the Father and taking the full wrath of God and draining the cup. And he bears the sin of all who would ever believe He's forsaken by God. We, we just came through that because he becomes sin even though he had no sin. Now, I think in some ways when he cries out, it's finished, he's pointing to this, that this physical, this, this suffering that involves so much more than physical is over. 
But more than the prophecies and more than the suffering, I think what he's pointing to is the fact that his assignment is finished. That what he was sent to do is gone. It's over. He's, he's been faithful to the end. John five thirty six. Jesus said, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus knew that he didn't come simply just to waste his life, but he came with a job to do. John 17, 4, he was well aware of this in the last part of his life when he prays to God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now on the cross, he cries, it is finished. I'll just ask you this question. Who else can get to the end of their life and claim that they have truly finished? That they've, that they've, they've finished it and no one will ever come behind them and improve upon it or do anything beyond it. That, that you have done something so perfectly that it will be left untouched from here on out. Who else can say that? I thought about people in history. Some of these have already passed away. Some are still living. But Steve Jobs, who was the founder of, of Apple, Macintosh, uh, Steve Jobs did a lot. But when Steve Jobs died, did they just stop improving and stop creating and stop bringing out new models? Or did they then come on his products and, and begin to, to go beyond them? Can Steve Jobs get to the end of his life and say, it's finished. Nothing more you can do here. Could Ronald Reagan, great politician, could Ronald Reagan get to the end of his life and say, there won't be any more political work to do because I have done it all? Aren't there still politicians and aren't there still issues that need to be led through even today? Don't we still have dictators in the world that are um, making decisions? And, and I mean, it's just Ronald Reagan can't get to his, the end of his life. Barack Obama can't. Nobody can because as long as we live, there will still be issues. In the music or entertainment industry, can uh, Simon Cowell or CeeLo or any of these come to the end of, of their life whenever they pass away and say, ah, it's finished. There will never be any more music that needs to be produced because I have produced the greatest. They may think so. Can Steven Spielberg, can Oprah Winfrey, could Donald Trump, could Billy Graham, could Lottie Moon? You see, it's not just in that secular world out there that we can say that no one can truly get to the end of their life and say, it's finished, no more will ever have to be done. Only Jesus here can claim this. There will still be preachers, and there will still be evangelists, and there will still be missionaries beyond these. For me, Monday, and I've shared this with you, Monday's my day off, and in the summertime, Monday's a very gratifying day for me. It is an exhausting day for me, but Mondays I spend all day long outside working in the yard. And I weed eat, and I trim, and I cut the grass, and I do all that around the house. And I get to the end of the day, and I can look out over the yard, and there's a finished product. And it looks good, and it is gratifying. But what happens to that same finished product? The very same night almost. Next morning at least, oh, there's a dandelion pops up. The grass begins to grow again. And the very next Monday, I have to do it again. But see, Jesus comes to this, and only Jesus can come to the end of his life and say, it is finished. 
The work that the Father had sent him to do, he did completely to the point where no one will ever improve upon it ever again. What is this work? This work is the work of atonement. Some of you have been studying this in your Bible study classes. And if you're, not, if you're not part of a Sunday school class or a Bible study, let me just tell you, you are missing out. And if you're not, you need to jump into one. If you would like to help, have help finding one, just come see one of us. As Greg said, just ask, ask somebody, and we'll point you in the right direction. You're going to grow there. Some of you have been, have been studying the atonement in your Bible study classes. And I want to just give you a little bit of background about what the atonement is. The atonement is, is the requirement of something having to die because of sin. The Old Testament told us early and often what sin had cost. If you look back to the garden there before or, or while Adam and Eve have sinned and, and God's intervening and he's coming into the garden and he speaks to the serpent, he also does something for them. The Bible says there in the garden that, that while they had taken fig leaves and tried to cover themselves, it was an inadequate covering, and God slayed an animal. He, he took animals, and he killed the animals, and he used the skins of those animals as covering for Adam and Eve. Noah's Ark, we, this movie in the, in the news right now that is, probably has as much Bible in it as what you could fit in a thimble, maybe, I don't know. But, uh, but Noah's Ark is, is this story that, that pictures God providing shelter, a way of rescue, when He's sending this divine judgment on sin. The sin costs life. But even in the middle of it, God is extending grace. Abraham offering Isaac when he lays him on that altar. Even though God stays his hand, God still provides this ram caught in a thicket, and this ram has to die. All those lambs at the Passover, the the first Passover in Egypt, when they slayed all those lambs and painted that blood on the doorposts, uh, a world outside that doesn't understand God and atonement looks at that and says, oh, that is just so barbaric and bloody and we don't want any of that. The reality is it's telling us all the while the cost of sin. This was what Jesus' assignment was all about. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 1 John 3.5 says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in, in Him there is no sin. I hope you see it. I hope you see that in all those pictures of an animal having to die because of sin, I hope you see that they were all pointing forward to Jesus. So when Jesus here cries out, it is finished, he's saying all of those sacrifices that were not lasting were pointing to me. And this has finally been fulfilled here in this moment, which means what else is finished? Our guilt. For those of us who were in Christ, our guilt is taken away. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our guilt is taken away. If my sins have been laid on him, then they're no longer on me. 
And some of you sitting out there today need to hear this, that if you're trusting in Christ but still feeling the weight of your guilt, what you're not understanding is your sins have been laid on Christ. If you are a child of His, trusting in Christ, there is no guilt for you. There may still be sin in you, this old nature that still resides But there is no sin on you. That verdict has been passed on Christ. This was uh, vividly portrayed in Leviticus 16 for us. Leviticus 16, at the annual Day of Atonement, what would happen is the nation would come and, and they would bring two goats to the temple. And they would bring those two goats to Aaron or to one of the sons of Aaron, the priests, and, and, and they would bring the first goat and and. Aaron or the priest would take the, and I apologize for some of this being graphic, but he would take that goat and he would, he would pull the head back and he would slit the throat of that goat and the blood would drain and they would take the blood and they would enter into the temple and they would go past the veil and they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat as atonement, showing that a price had to be paid, blood had to be shed. And then secondly, that second goat, when the priest came out of the temple, he would come to that second goat and he would place his hands on the head of that goat and he would call out over that goat all the sins, signifying that he was identifying himself with the goat and he was transferring these sins to the goat. And then the Bible says there in Leviticus 16 that they would appoint a runner, and that runner would then take that goat, and he would be taken out into a land uninhabited, and he would be left there to die. I hope you see that Jesus is fulfilling even that. That Jesus on the cross here is the goat having his his throat slit and his blood spilled for the cost of sin. I hope you see here that Jesus, when he is dying, he is taking our sin upon himself and he is taking it away into an uninhabited land where God is not. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the sin has been placed on him. Our guilt is taken away because Jesus has shed his blood and he has carried our sins away. Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is our guilt, but it's also our striving for righteousness. He's looking out to you and I who are here today as believers trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, saying to us, there is no no more striving. There's no more need to come to the temple and bring more animals to sacrifice. It's over. You You don't have to go for that. There is no need for you to seek to live a life of Righteousness, you, you, in order to gain my approval, the approval has been won by Christ. This has been the story ever since our first parents. Ever since Adam and Eve, every single person from there on out has tried to earn favor and good standing with God. You look at every religion of the world and every, every uninhabited place except for a pocket of people who, who don't know anything of the outside world, and you will go there and you will find them doing something to try to appease some idea of a God somewhere. And this has been a story of humanity since our first parents, ever since sin came into the world. It's 
moralistic deism. So I've got to somehow be good enough to please this God that's out there somewhere. And God gave the law, and the law was good. But has anybody ever been able to live up to that law? The answer is only Jesus. Only Jesus has ever been able to fulfill and totally keep that law perfectly. Every one of us in this place, if I were to, sometimes I'll say this with children, are, are, do you believe that you are, are righteous? Do you believe that, that you, you've obeyed and, and you're a good person? When kids, yes. You know, they're quick to, yes, I am. But all it takes is just a little bit of an examination of the law, looking inwardly to show that we haven't met all the requirements of the law. Not even today we haven't met all the requirements of the law. We are guilty sinners who need to be righteous because the law is good and it, is, it must be kept. This is what Romans 7 says. Romans 7 verse 12 says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But Matthew 5.17 speaks of Jesus and says, or, or Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. See, God knows everybody else had fallen short, but only Jesus has ever fulfilled the law. And I want you to see it. I don't want you to miss this. We've, we've talked about this before. But at the cross here when Jesus says, it is finished, we see here a double imputation. What that means is that, that we see God giving credit in two different ways. That first we see, even though, even though Jesus had no sin of his own, we see God imputing our sin onto him, giving Jesus credit for everything we ever did. Well, that hurts when we say it in that kind of language, doesn't it? Jesus got credit for everything I ever did. Think about all the sin. Jesus gets credit for all of it. But the double side of that imputation is that, that if, if we, by faith, trust in him, that he not only takes our penalty, but even though we have no righteousness of our own, God imputes Christ's righteous living to us. That we get credit for everything Christ ever did. Isn't that good? In Christ, it's finished. No more guilt. No more striving for righteousness because He was righteous and He has taken our guilt. I say all that to explain to you maybe some of those things that are finished here. When Jesus says, it is finished, so what's the bottom line? How should I leave out of here today, Pastor? Is there anything I can take away from this? Or am I simply supposed to say, yep, Jesus finished it all? Well, let me give you some bottom line for you to take away today. We are secure. Those of you who are in this room, hear me. We are secure in our salvation. Those who are trusting in Christ... Don't hear me saying that if you're here today, even though you've never trusted in Christ, never repented of your sin, you're just here, you're just attending church, don't hear me say you're secure in your salvation because if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're trusting in anything else, then you are not secure. Let me be plain about that. But if you are here today and you are trusting in Christ, we are secure in our salvation because 
Satan can't take it from us. When when we hear these words, when we hear Jesus cry out, it is finished, we should know that Satan can't take it away from us. He can accuse us. This is what the Bible calls him. He's the accuser. He can can overhear, he can eavesdrop at the cross the list of all the sins that were placed on Jesus that were your sins, where Jesus is getting credit for everything you've ever done. He can eavesdrop in some way to that, and he can repeat those sins back to us. But he conveniently likes to leave out part of what takes place here at the cross. He conveniently likes to leave out Jesus' words, it is finished. And he likes to bring them up as if they're still current, as if they're still part of who we are. But he forgets that last line. And and Satan will come and he will accuse and he will try to render you powerless. Greg talked about it before we got started today, that he would love to get you distracted today. One of the ways he often distracts us is is to accuse us. To come in here to to worship together and to accuse us and to recall and remind us of all the things, all the ways that we have fallen short and get us so distracted with that that we miss the part that Jesus is enough. Jesus has finished it all. But let Jesus' words from the cross remind us that it is finished. And when Satan accuses us, let us be quick to remind him of that. When we hear Jesus cry out, it is finished, we should know that we are secure in our salvation because not only can Satan not take it from us, but we can't do anything to ruin it. You can't do enough to ruin it. 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, I want you to hear in that. He doesn't say, Jesus bore some of our sins. Jesus bore most of our sins. Not just past sins. Not sins that aren't so shocking. The image here is, is when, when that priest stood there at the temple every year and confessing and calling out those sins, it's not as if someone comes and confesses sin to him and he goes, ooh, I don't, I don't know about that one. I don't know if I can call that one out. Jesus is not going to push back from. Now, don't, don't hear me saying that you have license to live however you want. I'm talking about someone who is genuinely a believer because your heart's going to be different. But Satan can't take it from you, and you can't do enough to ruin it. I should give you good news. When Jesus cries out, it is finished, we should know that we are secure in our salvation, but also we should know that we can't improve or add anything to it. Imagine going to a, an art museum where some of the most famous paintings and pieces in history are stored. The Mona Lisa is in there. And you come in with your Sharpie, and you somehow get past the security, and you come to that and you've said, man, I've just always wanted to improve her smile. I'm just going to sneak up there to that and I'm just going to fix that thing because it just wasn't right in the beginning. And would you ever do that? Why? Because that is a finished masterpiece. 
Would you ever come before Michelangelo's David and say, you know, I just never really liked this one part of it. I'm just going to take my hammer and my little chisel and I'm just going to fix that little part right there. It's a finished masterpiece. You would never come before this finished masterpiece and try to improve upon it because it is a finished masterpiece. And some of you are coming before the grace of God, the gospel of God, and you are coming as if you can improve upon it with your own works. And it is a sin of pride in your life. Thinking that somehow, yes, he was enough to get you forgiven to begin with, but there's just a little bit more you've got to do. To which I would say to you, put your chisel down. Put your sharpie away. Quit trying to improve on what Jesus has said is finished. Some of you are in this room and you are, you are not believers. And you hear this talk of Jesus on the cross and you hear me claim that it's finished, that he's paid the price, that he's taken guilt away, that he's given righteousness to those who believe and you're not a believer and, and you say, but I don't know, I don't know how to do that. I don't, I don't know, what have I got to do? Well, if you've heard anything that I just said, you can't do anything. You receive it. You take it by faith. You're thankful for it. You, you say, Jesus, I don't deserve this because I, I have fallen short and I'm a sinner. I don't deserve this, but Jesus, thank you. Please forgive me and save me. And you receive it. Some of you are here today and, and you are believers, but you have been holding on to the gospel, but in some ways you're thinking you're earning a little bit more favor with God by the things you do. And all you're doing is taking up a sharpie or a hammer and a chisel and trying to improve upon it. Stop. Rest in it. Receive it. I'm not saying don't serve. Serve. But serve from the attitude of, oh, I get to serve. He's done it all. It's finished. I don't have to do anything. It's, it's done. But now I get to spend my life, to pour my life out for the glory of my God. It is finished. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are indeed a finishing God. Your word tells us that what you have begun, you will finish. The, the work that you began in us, you will see it through to completion. And God, that is proven to us when we look at Jesus on the cross as he here doesn't shrink back from this task or this assignment, but he sees it all the way through. God, I pray that we would not try to improve upon it or, God, that we would not live in fear of thinking that we can somehow lose it or that it can be taken from us, but, God, that we would rest in the fact that you have done it all. God, I pray that in the responding to this text and this sermon, God, that you would glorify yourself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you just an opportunity to think on what's been said, to spend some time asking whether or not, uh, it got dark in here all of a sudden real quick, so, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But um, uh, We want you to spend some time thinking here, thinking here, what this requires of me. If it truly is finished, then what does this mean for me? How am I not believing that? How am I not receiving that? And whatever that requires from you, if it requires just right where you are to just confess some things to the Lord, then do that. 
If it requires you confessing some things to a brother or a sister, we've made provision for that. Today we are starting a brand new way for you to respond, and it is out these doors and around the corner in this Membership Matters classroom. As soon as I step down off this platform in just a minute, there's going to be some people from this congregation that are just going to be over there in that room. And if you'd like to go and just share your burdens with a brother or a sister and have them pray with you, then you can do that. That room's open for you, and you can go that way anytime. If today you're here and you know that you're not saved, you've never received the atonement that Christ has provided, then by faith, would you just turn from your sin and receive it? If you need to talk, I'll be here on the front row. Whatever the Lord is asking you today to respond with, then I'm just going to ask you to be obedient. When Ethan begins to lead us to sing, don't wait, just respond. Just do whatever it is that God is calling you to. Let's worship him as we respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.